Hello, welcome everybody, and I'm so glad you all came out on this really cold day uh, because I think it's an incredibly important message that we're hoping to give you today. So, this is the event on mobilizing for sustainable peace in Afghanistan, and it's about the Global Mothers campaign, which is hugely important. My name is Mary Caldor. I am director here at the London School of Economics of the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit. And our research unit basically has as a methodology the study of conflict through the lens of civil society. Uh, what we're interested in is that we find it's much better, you can understand conflict much better if you talk to people in civil society and actually engage yourself in thinking about their campaigns. Uh, and actually it leads you to a very different approach to conflict, which is instead of thinking the way to solve a conflict is through top-down peace processes, you really understand that the way to address conflict is really through addressing fundamental social relations, including, very importantly, the relations between men and women. So that's who we are, and we're very, very grateful to all of the people here, but I especially want to say a special thanks to Stefan de Mistura, who actually was not only special envoy to Syria, but also before that, he was in charge of the UN mission in Afghanistan. And actually, we've been lucky enough to have his help with our civil society initiatives in both Afghanistan and Syria. So he's really exceptional in the UN family in the way that he has engaged both with civil society and with women's initiatives. So that's really important. And he's going to speak right at the end. But I wanted to thank him for being here. Before we begin, Marika Theros, who works with me in the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit, and has primarily focused on Afghanistan, is going to start by explaining the context. And I'll explain, I'll introduce everybody else as we go through. So, I'll first introduce Marika. Thank you, Mary. It's a real pleasure to be here. And as Mary said, I wanted to provide a bit of background on the context and to really just highlight how complex and difficult the operating environment is for Afghan mothers and women. Today, as many of you probably know, Afghanistan's at a critical juncture, and there's both optimism and extreme concerns about the prospects for peace and the process in which it will be arrived at. After more than 17 years of war, it's clear that there's a strong desire for peace amongst the people of Afghanistan. For example, we saw the Helmand Peace March last year, the three-day ceasefire during Eid of last year, and the mobilization of civil society as well as the Women's Peace Jirga and the Loya Jirga that was convened by the National Unity Government to build consensus around an Afghan-owned peace. But even with this desire, the fear is extremely high right now. And this was nicely summed up by one, um, a female Afghan politician, Fauzia Kufi, who said, please do not make us victims of peace as well. People might be yearning for peace, but they want a peace that is durable and safeguards the hard-won achievements of the last 17 years. And it's important to note that, most, um, that more than 50% of peace deals around the world break down in about five years. And this is often when small elite groups make agreements that exclude the interests and aspirations of the general population. 
And it is really this perception and reality of exclusion that is driving anxieties across the country and mobilizing women and mothers to make their voices heard. In conversations and in newspapers, many people evoke the memories of 1992 when optimism for peace was soon replaced by civil war. And why is this the, this the case today? Well, first, the process which began in January of this year has really been driven by U.S. withdrawal talks with the Taliban. And the nine rounds of negotiations that have taken place has largely excluded both the Afghan people but also their elected representative, representatives of the government. The preliminary deal that was reached in August between the U.S. and the Taliban appeared to many to trade a hasty U.S. departure for Taliban promises to not collaborate with al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and, and simply to just sit down with the intra-Afghan in, intra talks. That is until they were abruptly suspended by, by a tweet by President Trump in early September. And what happened after was really telling. We saw an initial sense of relief amongst Afghan citizens that the deal was actually called off, despite their deep desire to end the war. For many, the exclusionary nature of the U.S.-Taliban process had signaled a delegitimization of their democratic <coughs> institutions, and it seemed to offer few reassurances that the Taliban would make good on their promises to moderate their position to protect women's rights and not to monopolize power. Moreover, what we've also seen in the absence of a clear diplomatic commitment to process design and multi multilateralism and, and the inclusion of non-Taliban Afghan voices, we've seen a rush from external actors to create parallel efforts, which have further complicated the situation, created unnecessary competition, and fragmented the process. We saw talks being held in Moscow between the Taliban and opposition political leaders. We saw the Doha dialogue in June, July, I believe, as well. And now there's an upcoming dialogue in China, although we also see Norway, Germany, and Uzbekistan seemingly desire to be the host of negotiations or, constant, or contact dialogues. And in the midst of all this activity, what has really loomed large for, and further fueled anxieties has been the possibility of instil, installing an interim government, one that includes not only the Taliban, but also the same political forces that have been implicated in past atrocities from the civil war and who continue to reenact cycles of corruption and conflict in the country. This has heightened fears that the gains of the last 17 years may be undone. And, if, and the sort of unhelpful framing of peace versus elections or peace through power sharing simply between armed actors does not capture the nuances and interconnections between sustainable peace and representation. Elections in Afghanistan, as we see today, are clearly far from perfect. But what is at risk from a mindset of peace at all costs is the entire idea of a constitutional order. As one young Afghan woman told me, quote, it is hard to imagine how peace can proceed when the safekeeping of its institutions will be handed directly to violent forces under the guise of peace. Another young woman stated, quote, Afghanistan is a young democracy that is still dealing daily with the legacy of violence, of warlords, of ethnic factions, but at least now we have a constitutional and legal framework to deal with it, however imperfect, and to support our struggle for rights. But what, amidst sort of this negativity, what has been really sort of striking and positive in Afghanistan is the remarkable mobilization of the Afghan people to get their voices heard in order to shape a better process and to shape their future, especially among women. Yet, uh, women mobilizing has also been challenged. When and where women have mobilized, they've often been dismissed as too urban, too out of touch, or even worse, as anti-peace, not only by political opportunists in their own country, but also by Western commentators. And so it's important to remind ourselves in all of this that Afghanistan today is not the Afghanistan of 2001. Yes, corruption and violence continues, but despite these challenges, the people have been fighting extraordinary odds to rebuild their political, cultural, and social institutions. 
women today are taking their rightful place in public spaces despite being under continuous threat. They are, they are police women, they are teachers, public officials, mayors, district governors, and entrepreneurs. For example, women account for over 14% of university lectures and university lecturers, and 28% of Afghan parliament members are women, a proportion higher than 67% of countries tracked by the World Bank, including France, Canada, Poland, Australia, and the United States. Lastly, demographics have changed in the country, and young people are rising to challenges and taking responsibility for implementing the desires they want to see. Nearly 80% of the country is under 40, with 65% under 25. And this generational change and the changing expectations it brings often goes underreported and undervalued. People today are demanding more education, more connection with the outside world, and they are creative and courageous in their approach to solving problems. And this is not only in Kabul and urban centers, but across provinces. And we see this now with the Mother's Network that has come together to demand their right to education, their right to autonomy, their right to work, and so forth. The potential that stems from this campaign should not be underestimated, especially if there is solidarity and support to them so that they can help shape their future and the peace process. And understanding this um, does not underestimate the great challenges that persist. But according to the World Bank's development report from 2011, it takes more than 20 to 30 years for countries to turn around. Afghanistan is more than halfway there, and any peace agreement must build on the progress that has been made and the aspirations of its people. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marika, and that was very illuminating and very helpful for all of us. Um, so the next speaker we have is Anne-Marie, Anne-Claire de Liedekerk, and she is the founder, the president of Make Mothers Matter. And Make Mothers Matter is an international NGO um, that believes in the power of mothers. <laughs> as a mother and a grandmother, I'm totally on side, <laughs> to make the world a better place. Um, and in particular, it's been playing a key role in supporting um, the worldwide campaign in solidarity with Afghan women and mothers. And so I'm very happy to introduce Anne-Claire. Thank you, Mary, and uh, thank you to all of you for being here. And a special thank you to um, this unit, the LSE Conflict and Civil Society Unit, for hosting the launch of this campaign in support of mothers in Afghanistan in their determination to hold on to the right to education for themselves and for their children, their daughters particularly. The LSE unit, from what I understand, exists to better understand how ordinary people can shape, uh, can take part in the decisions that are shaping their lives. In the same way, at Make Mothers Matter, uh, we exist because we believe that mothers should take part in decisions that are shaping their lives. Indeed, as you said, we believe in the power of mothers to make the world a better place. Mothers have that power. They don't need to be given that power. Uh, and this is a remarkable resource. What mothers need is opportunities. 
opportunities to sit at the negotiating table for peacemaking and peacekeeping, and opportunities to have a say for the education for themselves and for their daughters. We believe that um, mothers, alongside fathers, it's not that we believe, it's a, it's a fact, are the first to educate their children. Mothers care about education and peace because they are mothers and because the life of their children is crucial to them, the future of their children. Actually, any woman, mother or not, can relate to a campaign in support of the right to education for women. It's an universal right that is threatened in many places, and many of us here in a place where education is displayed can relate to that threat and that danger. That is why, then why do we decide to lead a campaign, to not to lead, to support a campaign with mothers? What makes a mother's campaign so powerful? Everybody has a mother. Mothers are respected, and so when women's rights are in danger, calling upon mother is very powerful. Also because mother are naturally in solidarity with one another. Mothers feel for one another, understand each other beyond the differences in our environments. As a mother and grandmother, many times over myself, uh, I really feel the connection to the, to the concerns of the Afghan mothers who are worried about the education from themselves and their daughters. So we have focused our campaign on Afghanistan because their calls have so often been suppressed amid decades of conflict. Women in Afghanistan are facing a critical moment and many of them from all walks of life are mobilizing as mothers now to hold on to their right to education. And as Angelina Jolie, the special envoy of the UN Commissioner for Refugees says, Afghan women should not be left alone to defend their rights. They need support. There are many, there are many stories that need to be told and supported, supported positive stories. You will hear Rahila Sadiqi, uh, Sarah Karimi, women of strength and courage, tell you about those stories, tell us about those stories. And as Sarah was saying, we don't want these stories to be invisible. I am inspired by your courage and your proactivity. And this is for women like you that Make Mothers Matter decided to support this campaign. Also because education is not only a right, it is the building stone for peace and prosperity. You all know that if you educate a mother, you educate a family. And if you educate women, you raise a nation. No education for women is not only unacceptable and discriminatory, it's also holding back a whole country. 
So when the right to education and peace is threatened and stability and prosperity are at risk. That's why standing up with mothers for women's education in Afghanistan is standing up for women's education everywhere. For all these reasons, Make Mothers Matter and its worldwide network of grassroots organizations working on the ground with and for mothers is launching a campaign of solidarity with mothers in Afghanistan. You can all support that campaign by spreading the word and help Afghan women's story to remain visible. As a cultural anthropologist, Margaret Mead was saying, never doubt that a small group of people, dedicated people, can change the world. In fact, it is the only thing that ever has. And we will be much more than a small group of people. So now, like a thousand kites flying in the sky, let's all help the voices of Afghan mothers to be heard worldwide. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for a very inspiring talk, and I hope now everybody's going to join <laughs> this campaign. And we are incredibly lucky now to, um, to have Sara Karimi, who's a filmmaker who's come especially all the way from Kabul. I'll tell you a little bit about her in a minute, but first, we're going to, she's, she's, she, she shows her films at the Venice Festival, she makes her films in Kabul, and we're going to see one of her films now. A trailer. A trailer for one of her films, yeah. Barid Barid Gulf Rostada. Chalo in Afghanistan, Sandikon is. Should you have a look at the African maker? The major mark will not have to be. Doctor, all noms of those should be just because of the Jehoshim Nami. That of Martaf in the telephone was hard.
Okay, well now we all have to see this film. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. I hope it's going to be shown here. Somehow I had a, I had a meeting with this music. But now, let, anyway, it's great to be able to hear from someone from Afghanistan. And here's Sara to talk about her film and to talk about the solidarity camp. This is? <laughs> I don't believe <laughs> So... First of all, thank you for inviting me to, to your beautiful city, London, and to this event. First of all, my English is not very good because uh, uh, I don't speak, it is not my language, it is my third language because I knew other languages. So if I make a mistake, I am so sorry, I accept my apologies, but I tried my best. These things you see, I will tell about these things. Artists are telling different stories and the style of our uh, talking is totally different. So I'm not going to write from paper, so I'm going to write, to, write, to read from my heart and to talk from my heart. So of course you are talking from your heart too. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't do it in diary or push I try to I try to write something on paper, but it looks like, like this. I cannot yeah. even read. So. <laughs> So, uh, my name is Sahra Karimi. I am uh, uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, uh, I am educated woman from Afghanistan. And uh, I am well-educated woman from Afghanistan. And, uh, and uh, I am uh, an urban woman from Afghanistan. And uh, I am a new generation from Afghanistan. So. But it doesn't mean that it is all, it, it looks beautiful, but it is very difficult to be. Educated, from woman, educated woman from Afghanistan in a very patriarchal country, urban woman from Afghanistan in a, in a country that they, they, they behavior and their way of thinking about you, it is about rural, as a rural woman, and it is not very easy to be independent and you think independently and you talk independently and loudly and you are from Afghanistan. So, you see this film, Hawa Maria Moesha, and my, my uh, people from Afghanistan, that some of them, they are here as a guest, they heard about this film. I had a premiere in in, in, in Venice, it is for any filmmaker, it is a dream to have a premiere at Venice Film Festival because it is a film festival. But at the day that, uh, uh, in the day that I had this premiere, uh, Mr. Trump had a meeting, wanted to have a meeting with Taliban and our president to talk about peace deal. I had a very, very strange feeling, very strange feeling, because, okay, this is my success, but I didn't know if I go back to Afghanistan, I could continue this success. Because we all know about Taliban. We all know about the dark time of Taliban. Of course, I know 
Taliban became cliché for Afghanistan. But this cliché is so real, so painful, and this cliché maybe become a reality of Afghanistan. When my film finished, it was one one thousand and five hundred people there in a hall, and I started to cry. I cried like I don't know, because it wasn't just because my film was had a successful premiere. Because I was afraid of this peace talk. Of course, we are not against peace. Of course, we are tired of war. Of course, we want to live in peaceful environment, in peaceful country. But the cost, what is the cost? My mother and many other mothers in Afghanistan belong to generation of illiterate women, uneducated women. They were so familiar with this thing inside the kitchen than this thing. They love their what is that in English? These things, yeah. <laughs> they love it. They take care. For them is very important. They go to buy a new one. They don't care about this. But my generation, we care about this because we can eat, to think, to use this. <laughs> so this is this is this is how we came these past 18 years, my generation. We became young women, educated. We started to learn languages, many different. Not my English, bad English, but your English is great. <laughs> we start to travel to the around the world. We start to speak in front of public. We start to to belong to the world and to find our place and position and identity inside the world. And it wasn't easy this last 18 years because we sacrificed a lot. If this peace deal happened, which I don't know it is a game, but it will happen, then the women of Afghanistan who, who are the main winner of this war, these past wars, will be the main loser of, 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 of this peace deal. Believe me, it will happen. If they, if they don't decide in proper way, if they don't deal in proper way, if they just close their eyes and just to sign and to release and to, I don't know, whatever they are doing because of this pistol, then whatever we did 
you people did because you contribute for the reconstruction of Afghanistan from each angle, each side. We will be loser. When you, at the end of the day, when we are loser, why we just spend millions of money, billions dollars inside of Afghanistan when we want to just give up? generation and the bright future for my generation it is not illusion anymore it is a dream real dream that we are fighting to fulfill it and we don't want to give up I want to tell stories I made this film because everybody outside of Afghanistan thought that we cannot make a film inside Afghanistan. I say, why? I ask why. They said it is impossible. But <coughs> it is impossible. We want to tell stories. We artists, we filmmakers. I'm not the only female, female filmmakers in Afghanistan. There are few others. Very strong women. Journalists, writers. Photographers, we want to tell stories. We want to become a voice of many, many voiceless women inside Afghanistan. We want to become a good and well, not good, all mothers are good. We want to become a educated mothers to have and raise our children in a very good environment. We don't want to belong to, to our generation of mo our mothers who were suffering, tolerating, they were silent, they just, they laughed, they laughed during the war, but they were main victims of the war. For that, thank you for your campaign. For, for what you are doing, because the world and the international society, they just decided to be silent about Afghanistan and about this peace deal. They just decided to not talk about it. Thank you for this event that you want to talk about it loudly. If you leave, if, if international governments, societies, NGOs, and every, everybody, if they just want to forget us, we will be voiceless again. And Afghanistan return to, to those years of 1996. And these young people, you, if you don't know that what was 1996, Google is easy, okay, search it, and you see ruin of 
Kabul at least, all Afghanistan. We tried our best with your help. to rebuild that ruined cities, city, those ruined cities. So I'm not going to talk a lot. If politicians are silent, if they want to, to make these deals, but you people shouldn't be silent. The mothers of the world, they shouldn't be silent. Because whatever you want for your child, peaceful life, beautiful life, a woman from Afghanistan, a, a mother from Afghanistan also want, wants for her child. Please talk about this peace deal loudly. Question it. Please ask questions that are very important because questions are very important. People, they just forget to, to ask important questions. They just searching for, for answers, answers, answers. You are, I, how many people here? 200? Yeah. If you join this campaign, which, which is, I think is, MM, mother, MMM, make mothers, make, make mothers mother. If you join this campaign, it means 200 people they are against this fact that who is going to lose and who is going to be new victims are mothers of Afghanistan. Thank you for coming. And I'm not going to talk a lot because I couldn't understand what I did. So, again, return to these things. A lot of young women in Afghanistan, they started to write their stories, their views what they are agree with, what they are not agree with. But it was because of our mother who used this just to, to keep us safe. Again, as I said at, at the beginning, we just want it be you, it be, it be, it be a tool for eating. We don't want to, it, it becomes a part of important part of our life in the kitchen. Because being in the kitchen, for many years our mother were there. It didn't change anything, anything, anything. We want to come out of our kitchens. Chicken or kitchen? Chicken. <laughs> kitchen. Anything. This is the problem, you know, kitchen and chicken. Both are bad for the... Kitchen, we eat this inside. For the chicken, we eat this inside kitchen. <laughs> we want just to have a possibility and freedom. For God's sake, freedom. To tell our stories. 
Please join this campaign. If you join this campaign, it means you support Afghan women and Afghan mothers. Thank you very much. Well, that was wonderful. Um, I must say, I'm always amazed how, despite all the discrimination, all the hierarchies, Afghanistan seems to produce some really amazingly powerful women. I remember many years ago, Marika and I organized a civil society meeting in Kabul, and there was a young woman there, only 22, who was just amazing. And she said, why do you treat women as a separate category? She said, my grandmother is an elder, and she decides in our village who will live and die. <laughs> so there are some very... And now we're about to hear from another powerful Afghan woman. Um, Rahela Siddiqui is a lifelong activist uh, who's worked for decades through Taliban rule, through the Civil War, through the post-2001 period for women's empowerment. She was senior uh, social development advisor to UN Habitat, former senior advisor to the Civil Service Commission, uh, and she's the founding director of Farkunda Trust for Afghan Women's Education. Thank you. pleasure to be among the great panelists here. I'd like to take you through my personal story shortly and then I will go on to say why solidarity from the grassroots in Afghanistan and why mothers' uh, education and daughters' education are important for us as a mother. I lived long in Afghanistan during the Civil War and also during the Taliban. In 1997, before, a few weeks before Taliban arrival, General Malik, who was the big commander in uh, Afghanistan aligned with Taliban, called me in his office. I was deputy regional program manager, actually, for UN Habitat at the time. He called me in his office and said that, Rahila, why you are uh, helping women, illiterate women, literate women, women all around this northern Afghanistan? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Um, I said, well, I'm helping uh, the illiterate women to be uh, able to educate their uh, children and to help with their sanitation environment and education and all that, and with uh, lecturer and intellectual group of women because they are supporting these illiterate women, and that's why I'm working with them, and it is helpful to our society. He turned his face to me very uh, frustratedly and said that you're not allowed anymore to do that. Why you did go to Beijing conference? Uh, why you go, went to Habitat 2 conference? 
I said, and what did you bring for me? Uh, you know, has a, has a big commanders with a gun, and he, when he asked me that what you bring for me, that means a lot to me as a woman in Afghanistan. And all of a sudden I said, I brought to you the uh, proud of Afghanistan. He got really frustrated and he said that, Rahila, you will be chased up with all our gunmen and uh, we will follow you every, every, and, and that was the case. And in two weeks after, Taliban arrived. And uh, I was at home and uh, so in two, three, four days, then the relation with Taliban of this commander collapsed and the situation came to uh, in a way that we strictly still working with women. But the, before that, we did a lot of planning to do all the education in home base, and all of them went back home. Back in 1998, I'm sorry that my son, Kimas Barakza, is here, and here his childhood, that's what happened to me, and to his, to him as well. Uh, in 1998, again, a few weeks before Taliban arrival, my home was attacked and I was only four months pregnant with my third child. He is my first child. Um, and they entered to my bedroom, and they beat my husband to the stage that he was bleeding. And he stopped his breathing, and I screamed and said that, please don't kill him. Then I was solid, and I was not able to talk anymore. First in the morning, after all this happening, they took everything from our house, and they said, sorry, we have been ordered. It was ordered by the connected people of the Taliban uh, from, from within the systems. First in the morning, the hap this incident happened to my house. First in the morning, another group came. They said that, Rahila, you have to sign the contract of the printing press, because I was in charge of UN Habitat as well for North Afghanistan at the time. And I said, I cannot do that. And the UN was in the picture. Luckily, I was the UN staff. The UN was in the picture, and they tried to evacuate me from Afghanistan. And uh, the next day, I was um, on the plane, in the UN plane, and all of a sudden, from this group of, um, well, I would call them mafia, uh, from this group, they uh, say that this UN plane should be stopped, and they say to me that, you should come down from the airplane. And I was looking my back that if there's somebody else, they said, no, you come down from the airplane. You can take off from the airplane. I took off from the airplane, and the next day, luckily again, you tried their effort, and I was evacuated by ICRC plane. And my children, with my son, they all evacuated through, through land. Uh, so this is my personal story. But coming to the uh, why the grassroots uh, and why mothers' and daughters' education is, is important for us and for myself as a mother, is I think if we enhance the power of knowledge to mothers, we will enhance knowledgeable society. And that's why women from all walks of life are trying to say no to illiteracy. Because illiteracy is creating multiple problems, that the women are not able to vote, not able to walk by their own choice, not have freedom, as said, and many, many other things, and economic problems, and poverty, and so on. So I'll take you through the, some of the slides, but they are all the stories of the uh, women who are mobilized in uh, uh, Afghanistan. 
Momina is the head of the Jabari Shura uh, in uh, Ghazni. He's, she said, I will fight up to the end of my life to continue our campaign to educate Afghan mothers and daughters. Nuria Safi, who is the head of um, the executive members of the Afghan Education Coalition, they have a lot of members, uh, they, she, she said, I have all confidence that the majority of our population will support this campaign. You can see a lot of charities, organizations, they came together and they wanted to support this, uh, this, this campaign. They're all big networks and, and, and charities and from all over Afghanistan. Not only from Afghanistan, but they're all in Europe. The diaspora community is get, getting together to support our campaign as well. Why? Because there are issues, and I explained to you, and Sarajan also explained, and Anne and everyone. The fight to eliminate violence against women will continue uh, until Afghan mothers and daughters can access to education and stay uh, to become self-reliance and self-confidence. We all know that there is a threat from Taliban and the frequent accusation that the Taliban prevent girls from accessing secondary education in the area that it is under their control. You know that there are uh, thousands of schools uh, have been closed in the past, uh, from between 2017 and 2018. And just last few months, 400 schools have been closed. And around three pounds, based on UNICEF report, 3.7 million girls, uh, children uh, at age of 7 to 17 are um, out of school. A, a girl from Kandahar said that, my father's old, my mother's old, uh, I'm the only breadwinner of my family and educated, and I wish my mother was educated to, take, to lift some of the burden from my shoulder. Another group of women from Herat said that violence and discrimination against us is double if our mothers are denied the same, um, denied the same rights. We want to be reached to secondary school and beyond that because many girls are not allowed to go beyond secondary school in Afghanistan. A girl from a school said, my mother says that if I am unable to read and write, it is the same as being blind. I heard this many years, many, many times, several, several times. But women from all walks, as I say to mothers, they are either being Afghan Women Network, there's a big group of women in Afghanistan that they are uh, supporting. Um, we did this campaign together. They say Afghan women from all walks of life continues their work to educate every mothers and daughters in Afghanistan. Another group of women from Ghazni say that both women from illiterate communities as well as those with education want to shape the future of Afghanistan. They are united in their desires. Another group of students from university said, we wish our mothers could have been educated as well. And many youth are supporting our campaign, and they say that our mothers and daughters are the basis of Afghanistan's future development. And a group of girls said, we are not alone in our desire to see every mother in Afghanistan educated. Millions of Afghan mothers who were denied access to schools wish his <coughs> wish this for uh, themselves uh, as well. 
group of students from Al-Aqbal University said, without our mother's education, there will be no development. There are all messages from different group of committee. Small children, they said, our future will be bright by education. Another group of, uh, a lecturer from university who is basically like Salah said, rural, but he, she's lecturer at the university right now, said, we want the support of you, the international community as well, to, for, uh, to educate our daughters, mothers and daughters. But they are taking action themselves as well. A uh, group of uh, youth and community from Helmand said, why should our mothers and daughters not be educated? We, the Hellman community, will support this campaign. And there's another group of youth university students say that we want our daughters to study as well, not only us. Beautiful girls uh, said, I forgot which community, we are the half of our society. We want to contribute to our country. We want to contribute to our country development by building our own knowledge. I love this. They said, we want greater access to higher education. They are so brilliant. Another group of men and women uh, said, we want our mothers and daughters to be educated, not only our son. And the youth group women said, uh, girls said, we will not stay silent. Education is our basic right. And um, they called for support, but they said we are strong. We will continue to demand education. But they said we need support. We need support of our countrymen. We need the support of every other uh, people as well. Um, this is our diaspora community. Our diaspora community, not only in uh, in UK but in EU, um, they are all love to support this this campaign. And um, I would like the mothers of the world the, also to, to support us in this campaign as well. We stand in solidarity. This is youth group and uh, uh, support uh, in sports. Uh, they said we stand in solidarity with our mothers and daughters uh, campaign. And um, these beautiful girls said we ask you to remain in solidarity with our campaign. And if I ask you all for their uh, asking your solidarity, it's finished. It's two words slide. Um, will you all support? If every one of you support, please raise your hand. Does everyone support this campaign? Does everyone support this campaign? Great. <laughs> Thank you. And MP, um, the, 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 the people who are working for peace, they say that peace will not happen without education. So we are supporting this campaign as well. And the, the, the lady who is the member of the Afghan National Education Coalition. An MP from Afghanistan, many MPs, but I just put one of them. There are so many photos and, and stories and messages from people. People's life will not be changed in Afghanistan if women are uh, barred from education. Please support our campaign. And finally, I would say great thanks to, and to Make Mothers Matters for supporting our campaign. Thank you so much. I would also do a special thanks, special thanks to Stephanie for their coming and also thank you to LSE for hosting and supporting us and thank you to you all for your patience.
Well, thank you so much, uh, Rahela, and thank you for telling us your harrowing story, um, which so many women must have had to go through. Uh, so now, finally, we have Stefan de Mistura. There he is, in a helmet and a flat jacket. And he, as I said, he was UN Special Envoy to Afghanistan, to Syria, and also Lebanon. And he was former Under Secretary General of the UN. And he, will, he is supporting this campaign. Thank you. Thank you, all of you, for organizing this, Make Mothers Matter, LSE, quite an alliance, I must say, and quite an example on how you can mobilize something that is strong in a good cause. So I really appreciate a lot this type of energy that I can see today. Have you heard the Afghan women? Huh? Have you seen how strong they are? Remarkable. This is just a little bit of it. You should have seen how strong they are when they are in the parliament. You should see them in action when they are judges, lawyers, media, soldiers, police, doctors, students, teachers, ambassadors. By the way, this picture is in Baghdad. It's not in Afghanistan. And, uh, <laughs> I did wear the, uh, the sometimes uh, helmet there, but uh, that was in, in Baghdad. Now, my job today, I believe, based on what you have been uh, suggesting, and I take it uh, seriously, is rather than repeating what you have heard, because you have heard quite compelling messages and a wonderful trail, is actually trying to summarize a little bit where we are and what actually is the question, what can we do, what should we be doing in this occasion, because the timing is perfect. The timing is perfect because the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking because we have a resounding silence on what is being currently discussed between the US government and the Taliban. We have no idea. Only we know that there is a discussion and a negotiation about a withdrawal. But is withdrawal everything? At any cost? You heard it not at any cost, and not at the cost of women in Afghanistan. 40, 51% of the population are women. And they should not be paying the price for two reasons, if many others. The first one, we have been deluding them. We have been giving them 18 years ago, and I was there myself. I've been three times on, on post in Afghanistan. We have been giving the impression and the feeling that the world will never abandon them. We gave them the impression that, in fact, those of them would have the courage, and at that time it was even more dangerous, to actually raise their will to want to do something, to study, to get education, to be involved in professional activities, they will be able to continue doing so, that the page was turned. I would like also to remind all ourselves and then about one thing, and perhaps we should ourselves try to remind our own governments and the civil societies in other countries. 
you were there. Some of you perhaps were a little bit too young, but uh, I will certainly remember very well what happened in 9-11. We will never forget it. We were all New Yorkers, you remember? We were all New Yorkers. And the reaction was, we will have to do something of what happened in 9-11 in New York, because it did start in an area in Afghanistan. But 50 countries got involved, eh, Andy. 50 countries, NATO, military from all over the world. Every country lost men and women, including the UN. I was in charge of the mission there, and I will never forget when we lost our colleagues in Mazari Sharif. I would never. But that happens to every country who have been involved in it. Did those countries get involved only because they wanted to punish bin Laden, which, by the way, had been punished and has been killed? Or was it also, as I want to believe, and I think the public opinion who supported that mission for 17, 18 years now, was also, and in particular, because we were outraged by those scenes of the burqas, Lady Karen, and being stoned to death or punished simply because they had listened to music or because they had tried to go to school. That is what should be now the message we should be giving to everyone who is or has an influence on those negotiations. My fear, and the fear of many, including in particular Afghan women, that we may be faced suddenly by December with an announcement and that Almanza will say, we have found a solution, a peaceful solution. We all want peace. The first ones who want them are the Afghan. They don't want any more conflict. Everyone is tired, and so are the countries who have been involved for 18 years, but not at the cost of going back to the Middle Age for the women. Mm. If that takes place, that's not peace. That is simply evacuation, departure, abandonment, betrayal. Now, you could ask me, and since that has been my job in my life, I've been 47 years in 21 conflicts, what can practically be done? We got some messages too, didn't we, today? I think we should be able to remind our governments, those who are being silent at the moment, including in fact, we should be reminding the U.S. public opinion because I know many of them, and we have seen it, have been worried about what is, might be happening, including in the Congress, regarding what may happen by a sudden withdrawal without ensuring that the women in Afghanistan will be protected. Well, one thing to do is to insist, because that's practical, insist that the women are on the table of the negotiation. So far they are not. So far it's lip service. Second, that the women issues such as education and jobs should be guaranteed in writing and publicly by the Taliban when and if. We hope there will be peace. We all want it. But when and if that is dealt with and announced, that should be transparent in writing and public. Women will be allowed to go to education as they desire, will be allowed to not lose those freedoms they have, will be allowed to actually find and continue having a job. Now, you may say, well, how do we control that? Well, first of all, I think there is a way to control that or to ensure that. 
And I brought with me a document that I retrieved. I was there, so I, I can. This is a document which is the Tokyo Declaration, which took place 2012. I was there. I was sitting there. I pushed for that. In which, at the beginning, the paper in the Tokyo Declaration, signed by 47 countries and the government of Afghanistan, committed themselves on one side to contribute a lot of money from the taxpayers of the whole world to allow the Afghan government to stand more and more on its own feet in change for contributing to improving the situation in Afghanistan. The original paper had the women mentioned only once, I want you to know, and some of you were there, only once including women. And I remember, and I take pride from it, I stopped the conference. I was representing Italy at the time as Deputy Foreign Minister. And you have an advantage of being in a government because you can stop a conference. In the UN you can't do it as a UN. <laughs> you actually help conferences. In that case, I was able to stop it and say, sorry, there is something missing here. Including women? Is that all? And the whole conference was meant about money from the whole world to contribute to the future of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So we stopped the conference for several hours. And you know, conferences which don't end uh, with a photo opportunity are very bad, usually. <laughs> and uh, normally you also need uh, unanimity. If you don't have unanimity, it's not a successful conference. It's half of a conference. So I had leverage for once. And the delivery was no photo opportunity unless we change this. And if you look at it, well, I will, six times it was included, especially women. But that could be still lip service. Six times anyway, on various paragraphs. And it should be linked, and here comes the point, with a proportionate contribution of the aid based on assessment of what is the standing the improvement of the women in Afghanistan. That link needs to be there. Because even the Taliban will need, once they are hopefully in a peaceful format inside a coalition government, let's imagine, they also will be very sensitive to the fact that Afghanistan needs resources. And the taxpayers in the world may be potentially vulnerable, interested in contributing to even that extra mile, only if they will also feel that the compensation for that would be women are not being denigrated back to the Middle Age. So we do have a plan, and there are proposals which are not impossible. They are quite simple and quite direct. And we got today even the symbol of the campaign, my friends. What was it? A pen. Imagine that women in the world, famous women in the world, famous or non-famous mothers in the world would be marching or taking pictures or be seen whenever they talk with a pen in their hand and say, this is for the Afghan women. Yeah. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm already waving my pen. <laughs> Thank you so much. And we now actually still have half an hour for discussion which is great. So let me know who would like to ask a question. I have one man, one woman, 
Anybody else? Let's take four we've got. So let's take four and then... Oh, okay, we start with you, because I saw you first. The man here and then the lady here. Thank you so much for the event and for the opportunity. Uh, Mr. Demister, I remember back in 2012 that uh, we asked you a question in the press conference about the possibility of peace in Afghanistan, and you said you are optimist about that and it will take time. You were in Afghanistan in a very crucial time, and you were following the developments closely with the officials and with the international supporters. Can I ask you what went wrong at that time that we still see an unstable and insecure Afghanistan? And I would also like to know your opinion about what should be done in the coming months or years for the uh, peace talks and uh, the efforts towards the uh, stable Afghanistan. Thank you. Okay, and now the lady there. Uh, just going to stand up so I can see the panellists. Uh, hello, good evening. My name is Fatima Naimi. Um, I just want to firstly say that Khanum uh, Siddiqui and Khanum Karimi, I am so proud to hear you speak here tonight as a young Afghan woman myself. I mean, you, your words are so inspiring and uh, your arguments were so compelling. My question is um, for you both, actually. Um, as a young student at UCL and someone who knows other young Afghan students who want to go back to Afghanistan one day and help, um, help in the development uh, of, Afghan, of opportunities for Afghan people, people sorry, um, I wanted to ask you what you think we could be doing better and what you how you think that young, young Afghans in, uh, outside of Afghanistan could help. And another thing, how do you think that we can combat um, brain drain uh, with young students leaving uh, their countries of origin but then contributing to uh, countries outside of their home country instead of going back to help? Thank you. Okay. And then we had, where were the others? The lady in the middle. Hello, thank you very much for um, hosting such an important debate. Um, I'm a student at the London School of Economics and hopefully I'm going to be undertaking a dissertation relating to um, you know, peace uh, within Afghanistan and um, how, for example, we may be able to address uh, a number of different crimes against humanity that have already been committed within the country. Um, I'm actually joined here today as well with my mother-in-law who is from Kabul. Um, and she is an ardent um, activist with regards to human rights um, and advocating on behalf of Afghan women, so I'm very proud to have her as well with me. Um, my question is relating to how we can address past issues or miscarriages of justice on behalf of Afghan women. So specifically, I want to ask why the ICC, so the International Criminal Court, failed in its attempts to prosecute crimes against humanity. Now, specifically, I'm talking about um, particular Afghan women detained um, and held in prison um, without, you know, right or access to fair trials. 
um, who were raped and beaten within those um, prison institutions, some of which go undocumented as well. Um, and how, for example, as well as us educating women of today within Afghanistan, how can we correct past injustices and miscarriages of justice um, in an effective way to, to rebuild the country um, in support of, of women and women's rights? Okay, and there was one more person I saw, the lady behind you. Also, thank you very much for the great talk. Uh, I have a uh, I used to work for a Japanese NGO working in the field of education in Afghanistan, so I'm particularly interested in education in Afghanistan. So uh, I have a particular question to Ms. Uh, uh, Sahela and also uh, Ms. Sa Safra. <laughs> yes, uh, because uh, you are both from... Are, uh, I am missing both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, so uh, my question is, uh, so I think education system in Afghanistan has uh, were drastically changed after 2001st after removal of uh, after removal of uh, Taliban regime and i want to know how do afghan people perceive the education system introduced after the removal of Taliban regime uh, is my question clear <laughs> yes it is clear yes yes particularly i'm asking question this question because uh, i think uh, uh, education of Afghanistan sometimes was ma manipulated by the external intervention, like during the Soviet regime, or uh, sometimes due to the in invasion by Soviet regime and so on. So, anyway, the education after 2011, after 2001, also somehow uh, affected by external power. So, I want to know how Afghan people perceive the education after uh, the removal of the uh, Taliban regime. Thank you. Okay, why don't we go back to the panel and answer those questions, and if we have time, we have another round. And I will let Sarah and Rahela start. What was your good name? Uh, uh, you had actually very good question and very in-time questions regarding how you can be engaged as a young diaspora in development process of <coughs> Afghanistan. I would say there are uh, multiple ways for your engagement. Um, right now, there are so many uh, bits about the diaspora engagement in the Afghanistan development process. And I hope you are uh, uh, going through this search and finding so many conferences and a program about Afghan diaspora engagement. Um, so you can see that what all the structures, like now, right now there is a Copenhagen conference, and uh, I hope the young generation demand that there should be specially conference for them and even sectoral conference for them. For example, uh, young generation who is studied here in economic uh, area, in education area, in uh, women empowerment area, in different areas, so that they can get engaged. And first of all, you should among yourself, share your information. We had academic conference this year, and it was very, very interesting that so many young generation came. But I think those type of conference, our conference has different topics uh, about development. But I would suggest that, and it is a annual conference, we have each year on September this conference. I hope this conference, these topics and conferences could be supported by international communities, that it is subject-wise and engage this young generation and people like yourself 
to find yourself first of all and to get more information and then to understand how you get engaged. The other way I would say, please do uh, get engaged with charities that they are working in Afghanistan and relevant to your field or uh, if it is women empowerment, education or economy and that can give you more um, how can I say, um, energy and information that how you can be engaged. Okay, about engagement in Afghanistan. Okay. Uh, I have a question. Have you, have you, live, uh, have you been in Afghanistan or have you lived in Afghanistan? No, okay, so you have like kind of experience living inside Afghanistan, yeah? You have a, this experience of living inside Afghanistan, okay. So, uh, because I didn't live in, uh, I didn't live in, inside Afghanistan. I was born outside of Afghanistan. Then I, dis when I, when I finished my study in 2000, uh, at the end of 2012, I decided to give up everything and to go to Afghanistan and to work there and to live there and to face the reality up, like eyes by eyes. So this is, but it is from my personal experience, I think that it doesn't matter if you are inside Afghanistan or outside of Afghanistan. If you are inside of Afghanistan, you can help. If you are outside of Afghanistan, you also can help. You know, you don't need to go back if there all conditions and everything uh, if don't let you, okay? Because we are, we have very good and very uh, important uh, Afghan women, men, young generation outside of Afghanistan than indirectly and somehow very directly than those who are inside Afghanistan, they are helping. Because they are good, they are ambassadors somehow. But how helping? It means when you get well-educated outside of Afghanistan, when you go to university, when you work. So somehow it affects, you become a role model for at least for the, among the, your community, among your family. And believe me, it will work, it will work, it will work some, someday. But if you want to, 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 to go to back to Afghanistan, just make, don't make illusion that, okay, I have a master's degree. If I return to Afghanistan, everybody will come me. Nobody will come you. I had a PhD when I returned to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And it took, it took me six years just to go the first step. People accept me. But they didn't accept me because I, ha I, ha I have a PhD. They ac accept me because I become a part of the government in very 
low level of position, which for them is very high level. <laughs> so, there is no like, like, like you are, uh, advice that if you do this, 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 then you can help Afghanistan. It is your personal choice. And the way and the journey that you choose to go and to pass. I know some Afghans, they love Afghanistan. They are outside of Afghanistan, but sitting behind computer, they are sharing all rumors, they are sharing hates, they are sharing everything, they are fighting virtual ethnic war, and they think they, they, they help Afghanistan. But they are part of those groups who destroy Afghanistan. Our time is not the time of going and taking, buying ticket and just go direct. You, even from the, from behind, uh, like sitting in front of the dishes, you can destroy Afghanistan or you can build Afghanistan. So it is very, very complicated, you know. But first of all, finish your education. <laughs> Yes, great. Uh, a question which is difficult to reply because every case is special, especially because I did leave Afghanistan for other missions, as you remember, just at the time after the conference. But um, um, I would say, if you really want to be basic on that, foreign interference has been a substantial complicating factor. This has been also seen in many other conflicts thereafter. The second one is lack of consistency. In by the international community, it goes up and down, up and down, instead of being focusing and trying to do the maximum in order to make sure that uh, there is uh, a good follow-up. And the third is the key word of most of conflicts, including Afghanistan, inclusion. Some groups have been feeling excluded, and some groups have been taking advantage of that exclusion in order to mobilize them. And that needs to be changed in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a mosaicus. Do you remember? It was a wonderful mosaicus. Where every, and you know what is the difference between a mosaicus and uh, something else? That every stone is important. The moment you take away one stone, that little golden piece, is not anymore a mosaicus. And that's what happened when the first time Afghanistan became part of uh, an invasion, Soviet Union, and then it went on with international involvements, but never paying attention to try to make them including everyone. That would have given very little space to Taliban, for instance, to recruit. Anyway, this is a simplistic answer to a very complicated uh, mm -hmm. question. Uh, to win the war is one thing, and uh, I think that the NATO won the war more than once there. But you need to win the peace. And to do so, you go back to inclusion. And that can be done only by the Afghans. 
Uh, about uh, her question about education, I think. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. <laughs> it was to both of us? Mm -hmm. uh, please. No, 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 because I didn't get the question. Okay. I know that what do you mean about education that in uh, during the uh, uh, like Soviet uh, Soviet uh, occupation. And occupation. It wasn't. It was occupation and not occupation. <laughs> so, and the uh, Yes, but that time is different, you know, because that time the technology wasn't that that much developed right now. Because uh, I know that you um, you 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 think that it was manipulated education because the ideology of communists and those things. And uh, uh, after 2000, 2001, uh, first of all, going to school for women and men, for girls and ch uh, and boys, they were very important like going to school, because it was a stop, and uh, civil war and then Taliban. And uh, our education system is, our governmental education system is very, very, very weak, because our teachers are not that much good, okay? But our non-governmental education system is very good. You know, uh, and the example that I'm going to give, uh, give, uh, give you, it, it also connect, uh, connects with your uh, uh, question, that there was a girl from Panjshir. Panjshir is a very mountainary valley, and it is very conservative. She got to the school, to private school, and she got a scholarship to Oxford. Farishta Karim, Afghans, they know. She studied in Oxford, dream, I, I think, for most of Afghans. When she finished her study, she returned to Afghanistan because she wanted to do something. Of course, everybody said, okay, she studied at, a, um, like, uh, she has a background, Oxford education, so she will be somewhere in government and high in like uh, well high well paid NGOs or non-government uh, organization but she decided no I am going to have a first library bus she rent the bus she painted the bus she made the library inside the bus and she started travel from one street to another street just to, to ask children, come and read book. Mm -hmm. Charmax. Charmax is... Uh, Walnut. Charmax? Charmax. Walnut. Walnut. This, yeah, that one. Walnut. Walnut. Yes. It calls. <laughs> then she have the second bus. Then Ministry of Education visit the boss, and then donors, and then every everything. This is just a boss library boss. Mm. She have a background Oxford education, so it is about idea. If you want to return to Afghanistan, I don't. I, sh I tell you, don't return, okay? <laughs> but if you want to return, it is about idea. And that girl, she, she is the gener generation uh, after uh, 2001. 
We are competing the world. That boy is sitting there. He is now a very well-known journalist inside Afghanistan. He's the generation after two, after 2000. Many of people that I don't know. <laughs> I know that you, uh, I don't know them personally, but because I know him personally, and he loves these things. <laughs> he loves eating. <laughs> it is not about the, of course, we have problem, but, but we have, those problems are always, but the main and the important thing is that we have access to education. Mm. When you have access to education, okay, you will pass elementary school, you will pass high school, and step by step with this, you have access to the world, and you are not anymore naive like during Soviet time to be manipulated. Well, it's very complicated, but the new generation of Afghan girls, Afghan women, and Afghan men, girls and boys, they are so smart. And they are beautiful and handsome too. <laughs> I just wanted to add something about the justice question. Uh huh, mm. justice. Yeah, and maybe Rahila would like to say something too, but one of the things, I mean, in, in our center, we study Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Congo. And in every single one of those places, the primary demand of civil society is for justice. Yeah. And it's something that is incredibly neglected by the international community. I, I can't quite understand why. And the reason people want justice is not just because of to help the victims in the past come to terms with what happened. It's also to prevent impunity today. And it goes back to what we're talking about with peace processes, because the peace processes involve the warlords. They involve the people who commit crimes, and they go on committing crimes during peacetime. And so you must have justice to get rid of those people, because you will never get a peace until you get rid of those people. So I'm completely in agreement with you. I think the International Criminal Court is hugely important, but I think there's a huge one-sidedness of it, which has undermined its legitimacy. There hasn't been any effort to deal with the war crimes of the West. Um, but I think justice is absolutely central. And one of the things we also find in our work in all these places, particularly interestingly enough, South Sudan, is that there's a lot of justice activism. There are lots of civil society people who try to document war crimes, and there are good lawyers and good judges who have mostly have their lives threatened because they're trying to do justice. And the international community does very, or nothing actually, rather than very little, to protect those people. So I think the justice question is hugely important. <laughs> Um, it's exactly 8 o'clock. I was hoping we'd have another round. Is there anything anybody else would like to say? Anne-Claire, you haven't said anything. Or Marika? Marika. 
Um, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone and also just wanted to talk a little bit uh, just to make one last comment about the peace process because I think, uh, you know, we've heard this campaign is about putting things on the agenda for the peace process as well in terms of education and inclusion. A lot, the debate has been pretty stale on the peace process so far, whether, and it's been polarized between those, you know, being dismissed as advocating for endless war or those advocating just to deal with the Taliban. And there is space in the middle, like Stefan de Mistura told us, to design a better process, one that is inclusive, but not inclusive the way in which it's been defined now. Inclusion now is about just bringing all the armed actors together. And a lot of them who actually don't have as much strength as uh, they are being perceived as, whether it's um, you know, certain sort of strongmen and so forth. Inclusion should really, so sometimes we have to get beyond the inclusion debate to also redefine inclusion to think about how do we bring in sort of more civic actors, women, mothers, bring in their agenda items so that we can have a broader discussion on peace. So I, just, I conclude with that only because there is a demand for peace in Afghanistan, but it's a demand for sustainable peace, not for simply a deal that is being wrapped up in the language of peace when we all know that achieving peace without those uh, individuals and society members who are stakeholders in that piece um, will not be uh, sustainable. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yes. Um, how to continue or to start this campaign? Um, ideas have been put up and um, what you can do is really, you have the hashtags between, behind us uh, to follow what's going on. There will be ideas. Stefan gave us a great idea. I, I think it's very visual, it's very powerful. It has to come from Afghanistan, and then we can all follow and support what's going to be done. But please continue to follow it. So all the pledge that's been made by your hands up can really uh, happen. So thank you very much.